0: I've always dreamed Clinton, no, or maybe Obama, no, would create a WPA, which was so successful in the 30s and especially successful for artists. I mean, it was like key to a lot of major artists and minor artists and artists who became more major because of the exposure they had. And I'm see. your neighbor.
1: I wrote for the Poughkeepsie Journal. And I know you live in the Hudson Valley. I'm your neighbor. I'm going to go spend money at your business or in your town and support your businesses. And people just blew right past it. And it really boggled my mind. Like, hey, my pals in a band, let's go see him and pay the $5 cover charge. And okay, they'll make a few hundred dollars a night. Why wouldn't you want to support your neighbor or your neighborhood business? Everyone
2: is optimistic that I'm talking to. And so I think that has to do with obviously spring being around the corner, the political turmoil following the election being over and spoke to a couple this week who bought the movie house in Millerton, which is a little independent cinema in rural Dutchess County. And I said to them, what are you doing? You know, you're buying a movie theater in a pandemic. The movies are disrupted to begin with. Hollywood is now releasing first run movies to video and you're buying a brick and mortar. And the place was listed for over a million dollars. And they said, turns out there were 12 other bidders besides us.
3: Welcome to Intrinsic a podcast about the innate value of human beings and the motivation that drives us. I'm your host, Keiko Sono, recording from Socrates, New York. Today, we're bringing a conversation I had with Chris Silva, John Berry, and Brian Mahoney. Together, they have a combined total of 75 years of introducing, covering, and shaping the arts in the Hudson Valley. John Berry served as a music writer for the Poughkeepsie Journal since 2002 and interviewed legends like Ringo Starr, Pete Seeger, Levon Helm, and many others who passed through the Hudson Valley. John wrote extensively about the 1969 Woodstock Festival and the town of Woodstock, and his hard-news background proved critical when the COVID-19 pandemic took hold in early 2020. Chris Silva is in his 27th year as the executive director at Bardavon Presents, a New York State nonprofit that operates Bardavon Theater in Poughkeepsie and UPAC in Kingston. He has overseen countless productions by the top performers from around the world, including Al Pacino and Diane Weist in Salome, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, to name a few. Bardavon was hit hard by the pandemic, but they managed to expand their audience base by producing dozens of streaming programs. Brian Mahoney is the editorial director of Luminary Media. Since 1998, he's edited Chronogram, a cultural and lifestyle magazine in Hudson Valley. You can say Chronogram is the face of our community, with a unique cover that showcases artwork of local artists every month and content that has always been ahead of time. It's hip and down to earth at the same time, just like the communities in Hudson Valley. So I am really excited to have you all here, welcome. So the tradition on Intrinsic, when we have two or three guests who know each other is to ask each of you to introduce another guest in your panel. So let's start with that. Brian, do you want to start?
2: Sure, I'll start. I was trying to remember, John, do you remember when we met? Not to go too deep,
1: but I remember playing in a band when we were both at SUNY New Paltz, and more than one of the band members was living in a house on Water Street, and you were dating a woman, I think her name was Kate, who was also a housemate. I think that was
2: it. Right, that weird little house down by the creek when we were in school, so... Okay, so John, you and I went to school together and you were studying journalism. I was studying creative writing because journalism seemed a little too structured for me and I wanted to write some poems. But so you went on to kind of do the classic journalism career course. You went and got a job. Did you get a job at the Journal News right out of school?
1: I did the Legislative Gazette internship in Albany, which is a weekly newspaper covering state government under the esteemed, quote unquote, Dr. Alan Shartok at WAMC, was a college professor for many years. So that was my final semester in spring of 93. Before that ended, I had landed a job at a weekly newspaper in Rhinebeck called the Gazette Advertiser for $250 a week before taxes for about 60 plus hours. And I loved every minute of it. That culminated with my coverage of Woodstock 94, where I pitched my tent, wrote kind of a first person. I took six months off to travel after that, went out to the West Coast, saw a bunch of dead shows. And then I started writing obituaries for 10 bucks an hour freelance in January of 94 at the Journal News, which is a Gannett Daily paper in Rockland County, which is where I grew up. So if writing obituaries for 10 bucks an hour isn't Strange enough, it was in my hometown. And that's kind of how I started
2: things. Right, and so then, you know, that's I think when you and I reconnected when you were at the Journal News because you wrote a piece for Chronogram on, it was IRA activity, right?
1: Yeah, in Rockland I covered extensively the case of a former IRA member who served his time in Northern Ireland came to the U.S., was faced with deportation, and pled for political asylum, was granted it, etc. And then the piece I wrote for Chronogram was about another individual from Northern Ireland who was in a similar, not the same situation, but broadly speaking, there were similarities. So the, yeah, that's kind
2: of how I crossed over. Right, and then you went to work at the journal on the cultural beat, although I believe you started like as a music columnist, Is that, was that your first beat there?
1: Music writer was my official title, June 3rd of 2002. And then, for better or worse, my hard news background, which I developed over eight years at the Journal News, that made me like a platoon player because they knew that I could go see Carlos Santana at the Bardevan and write a review. But if there was a 10-card pileup or a shooting or this politician's got their hand in the till, they knew I could pivot and do that. So... I was glad that my wide reach allowed me to stay employed in a very volatile industry
2: till I left the journal on December 1st of 2020. Right, and so, you know, I think that you were the last man standing among the people that we went to school with who went into journalism. I think that everybody else had gotten out to go into PR or governments. And so that was always tracking your career in that way to see where the chips were going to fall there. But when you were writing about culture at the journal, and I was editing Chronogram here covering the same cultural beat, I was always looking at the journal to see what we should be covering, you know, to see what you were doing, because you always seemed to have closer connections to the promoters, the venue people, the artists. And so a lot of our coverage was always downstream of yours. So thank you for <laughs> taking the lead on that.
1: You're welcome. And I'm flattered. And I think my ability to move quickly that I developed covering hard news for eight years really served me well with the arts. Chris will tell you how much I love to break news. And, uh, you know, I had an editor who once said news sells newspapers, and there's really no getting around that, you know, people want to, they want the new information. So I would make that a priority to really jump on breaking news, or if I had a scoop or, I think Chris will also tell you that I loved all the great shows at the Bardavon, but that 30 minutes or 45 minutes before the show, out in the lobby, talking to people and networking and schmoozing and catching up, you know, I couldn't begin to tell you the number of story ideas I got from that time or at any venue that hang out beforehand.
2: Right. That boots on the ground
1: reporter instinct in you. Cannot replace that at all.
3: So, John, what do you think of Chris?
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny question. Here's here's the big thing I'll tell you about Chris Silva. That always I think everything about this guy. The thing that left the biggest impression on me about Chris Silva is if he was talking about hosting Carlos Santana for the Bardavon Gala, or Bob Dylan for a concert, or Welcoming a thousand kids for what maybe was their first interaction with the arts that could possibly change their lives. He was as equally excited about any of those things. His passion, from where I'm standing, was staging the arts, improving people's lives with culture. And I don't know what I can say during this broadcast, but giving a you know what about his community seems to drive everything he does. You know we all love the bardavan and upac and the shows and the glitz and the lights and these big names passing through our hometowns but i always viewed the bardavan and upac as something way bigger and that's you know an anchor i always like to use the word anchor civic cultural anchor of this region not even a county or a city or a town and chris silva and his team we're at the forefront of that. I mean, the bard of, look at UPAC. What went up behind UPAC? A huge building. You're gonna tell me that UPAC didn't play a role in that building being built right behind where the stage is or the Renaissance going on in Poughkeepsie right now. You're telling me that people looking to move into Poughkeepsie or businesses looking to relocate there don't say, oh wow, the bard what's that all about? So that's what I'll tell you about Chris Silva.
3: That's fantastic. Okay, Chris. Should I talk about John? What would you like? Whatever you like.
0: Well, I mean, John is, I talk about passion. I mean, I should tell the story, John, of when, you know, Dylan has used our theater many times. And both theaters actually have four different weeks, going back years. And um, with his whole band, rehearsing for tours for days at a time. But the first time we had him, he was actually writing a record. He was writing Modern Times. Which came out, I don't know, whatever, the next year. And they let me hang in the wings and watch Bob Dylan write new Bob Dylan songs, which was the most mind blowing thing ever in my life that I think could happen. And I got to meet him and stuff and talk to him, and that was all great. But I don't know, the second or third time, I gave John the story when the bus was pulling out, you know, and he was gone. I said, okay, you can tell everybody that Dylan was here. And of course he did. And then the next time he came, I said, okay, I'm telling you now that he's here but you can't do anything about it. So Steve and I were hanging out in the alley and we look over there and we go, is that John hiding behind a car in the parking lot? <laughs> so we go out there and, and it's like, no, he's not there. And then we go to like, some, wait a minute, is that John behind that building <laughs> over there? Because obviously a, a reporter who knows that Bob Dylan's in the building wants a glimpse, wants a chance to you know, have some interaction to, or actual story from it, but that was pretty funny. But no, I mean, John's as passionate as I am, and that's what's great, is that the excitement that he has about my excitement, or about the excitement of whatever it is, as you described. You know, I think, I mean, I can speak for myself and John, I think, you know, the passion thing, the love of what we do, the love of what we're around all the time, is really what it's all about, it's what keeps all of us going, regardless of what's going on, really, not regardless of the pandemic, but... In spite of the pandemic, we still have to try to find a way to maintain that passion and and get the work out and uh, turn people on. And and there is nothing like it. The funniest thing between what we've been doing our whole lives and now having to do it all online is that you know we're reaching a million people in a week as opposed to you know maybe a hundred thousand in a year in person. So it's a weird reality that. We can put something out there and 10,000 people check it out is kind of mind-boggling. But, and ironic, because that's what we've always been trying to do when we were live, is to get an audience online about, you know, to be pay attention to what we're doing. We've got their attention now, which is great. So, yeah, John is a real passionate protector of the culture in our community, and um, I appreciate it. And Chronogram, too, and what Brian's work has done, like, 20 years as well, right? They're all about support. We're all sort of supporting each other. You know, I provide material that they can utilize, but they're the ones that are letting people know what we're doing and keeping them passionate about it as well.
2: Chris, I'm curious, with the online programming now, are you seeing a real, like, spike in people being exposed to what you're putting online who are like not local is that a big thing for you
0: yeah oh well, yeah it's many languages in the chat box it's bosnia arabia iraq and iran it's every nation it's kind of mind-boggling that's what i said i like when we had the first thing we did was this shock of albums revisited series featuring bob dylan's highway 61 and that now maybe it's had ten thousand. People have viewed that or something, and we thought that was fabulous. And it was a broad range of people because you know he obviously attracts a lot of people. And then it kept growing and growing as we kept doing different shows. But by the time we got to the Nutcracker, we did a we streamed our Nutcracker from last year. We had seven hundred fifty thousand people viewing the Nutcracker, and in the chat, it was the UN. You know, it was just people, and it was like, "What you people have never seen the Nutcracker before? You know, where have you been?" But I think it was just, I don't know, timing, who knows? It was free. I mean, that helps. But yeah, I mean, in the month of December, we had a million views between the Nutcracker, the Messiah, which really had a strange reaction because the title is kind of loaded. And um, we're bringing the Messiah. And then also a Christmas Carol. I mean, between the three of them, a million people. And it was amazing. And you know, the last, Thing we did was just a couple of weeks ago. this Carol King's tapestry. Twenty thousand people, maybe twenty-one thousand by now, right? Have viewed that, and it's it's the most enthusiastic audience. My God! And they look at what we're doing as such a gift,
3: really, because it is.
0: I mean, it's free. That one had Annie Lennox on it and Carly Simon, and you know, a lot of artists. Carly Simon, in particular, that you never see. I mean, she doesn't. She rarely performs. Annie Lennox performs, but also not that often. So it was cool, along with a young artist who was on The Voice, who also killed. I mean, she was fantastic in her chosen cut. So, no, it's been cool. And it's like 100 artists, all told, that we're showcasing. So it's kind of, it feels good.
3: These streams were all free? You streamed these performances at no charge?
0: We've screened. Five albums revisited they are called the Dylan, the Dead, the Velvet Underground, Van Morrison and Carol King. Each one is the one album. So maybe it's a dozen songs. So it's maybe 60 songs all toll. and they're all free. It's all free. We ask for donations and we get them. But we really made a conscious choice because there's so much material. If you want to see Van Morrison perform himself, you can find it on YouTube. It's not that hard. But this was kind of unique because you had all these interpretations of all these great artists' songs. And people were very, they're very excited and turned on. And also, all the artists really put out. I mean, they made it as good as they could make it. And given everybody's different conditions in the pandemic, it showed. The passion of those artists really came through, I thought. I mean, you agree, John? I mean, you know, some of those performances are just powerful.
1: It really took on a life of its own far beyond the musician who was being honored and the musicians who were performing, it was just this kind of perfect storm. But I thought the whole thing just went leaps and bounds beyond this, the amazing musicians who were being honored. That's what really struck me.
3: Well, we'll definitely get more into, how things are during the pandemic and now we're coming out of the pandemic. I would love to hear uh, your take on what the future holds for the Hudson Valley and beyond. But before we get to that, I just want to go back to Brian, (laughs) because I don't know you, Chris and John, but I do know Brian, not as so much as personal friends, but as colleague and also as a reader of Chronogram, I just want to say something. I've been here since 96. And that's pretty much around where you started as an editor at Chronogram. And that alone is, I think, kind of an amazing feat to be an editor of a local magazine. And I think when I first Chronogram, I was like, wow, Hudson Valley is putting out this kind of high quality magazine with the large format of like interview magazine kind of format, but better quality paper and better quality printing. And you had a different artwork for each month. A lot of them I think were local artists. Almost exclusively, yes. Right, yeah, because a lot of my friends um, made it to your cover. So there was this real feeling of that chronogram was our magazine, it belonged to us. Our friends were always in the magazine in so many different capacities. And over the years, we saw the pages getting thinner and we always thought, oh, how long is chronogram going to last? But then it seemed like you really made a pretty amazing transition to online presence as well. And it's still going on pretty strong. So that's really kudos to you and your staff. And personally, we didn't really get to know each other through parties or anything, but I just kind of approached you, I think in some ways, I can't even remember. And usually editors like you, I think are just too busy to respond to inquiries from like strangers, but you've been very supportive of like every project that I've done. So I thank you, I really owe to you many small achievements that I've made, so.
2: Well, sure, unlike say an enterprising reporter like John who goes out and gets the stories, I wait for them to come through my email and then I pounce on them, so that's a part of it. But it's funny to think about when we started Chronogram, You know, my partner started in 93, I joined in 96, and we wanted to create something for us, a magazine for us, but also that reflected the Hudson Valley. And so we wanted to talk about culture. Like it was very culturally focused, but the cultural landscape back in the early and mid nineties is very different than it is now. summed up for me about uh, five years ago, my buddy Dave wanted to move up from Brooklyn to the Hudson Valley, and he was a little skeptical. He's like, he wasn't sure that the Hudson Valley was going to have the amenities that he was used to in the city. And he said, Brian, is there sushi in the country? And I said, yes, Dave, there is good sushi in the country. Shout out to my man, Machio over here in Kingston. So now I think the Hudson Valley, we can debate the level to where we're at culturally. But most of the things, aside from maybe going out to see world-class entertainment every night of the week in New York City or a larger city, we have most of the benefits of cultural life that you can get in New York. And we also have the amazing natural surroundings. We have more space than people do in New York. And so uh, what we started out with Chronogram was to talk about certain things, culture, farm to table food, self-development, yoga, clean energy. And a lot of that has come to pass in the Hudson Valley. And I make a joke sometimes that maybe our work here is done. The culture reflects what we wanted 25 years ago. And so here we go. But that being said, you know, there was a point where I would have uh, conversations with editors here, like maybe we're gonna run out of people who are doing interesting things to profile in the magazine. And that's just not the case. Like, we're publishing, as you mentioned, digitally more than ever. You know We publish content, multiple pieces every day of the week, and we're constantly not being able to cover all the things I would love to cover that are showing the amazing people and their projects here in the Hudson Valley. The Hudson Valley is just getting more and more interesting There is obviously a double edged sword with that interesting bit, comes with a certain cost, which is quote unquote gentrification, which is a loaded term, but that's what's happening.
0: You are listening to Intrinsic Podcast, produced by Forge Collective.
3: So, John, you recently retired as the music columnist for Poughkeepsie Journal. I would like to ask you and Brian this question. So Brian, you are a writer and editor, so you have the writing part and managing part. And John, you solely as a writer, you you were able to just focus on writing, right? Brian, I would imagine that it's pretty difficult to be on the both ends right? Because you have to manage the magazine. And I'm sure there were some instances where you had to make decisions that maybe would not be welcomed by writers. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing this out there. I'm wondering how difficult. Well, I mean,
2: certainly the writer editor relationship can be fraught, as I'm sure John can tell you. When it works well, it brings out the best in both people. But as I tell journalism students, when they say, you know, when I go to a journalism class, and I say, you know, Here's a question for you. Who are you writing for when you're writing for a publication? And a student will raise their hand and say, I'm writing for the reader. And I'll say, well, no, actually, you're writing for the editor because he's the person who's hiring you. And you may not agree with the editor and you may have a terrible relationship, but that's the person who is the gatekeeper. That's the person. So you don't have to work with that person again. I've worked with good editors myself as a writer and I've worked with terrible editors, right? At its best, it should be a collaboration that, The writer is open to the feedback of the editor, and the editor is open to the feedback of the writer, and it brings out the best in both of those people. I mean, John? Yeah, not
1: not at the Poughkeepsie Journal, but at another place. I can remember getting into it with an editor on a pretty regular basis where they would make a change, and I would say, do what you want, but take my name off of it, because I don't agree with that. And that's my position, and I'm going home. So there you have it. It wasn't easy for me to back down, but what I loved working with a good editor, and I loved having that back and forth, and we both make our case, and I think a good editor and a good reporter, a good editor is encouraging, and a good reporter is open to suggestions and not thinking it's wrong just because it's not yours. And came up with a better lead or a better nut graph. This whole concept of it being wrong because it's not yours And what struck me very early on is it's just like dealing with anybody in life. Don't be a jerk, keep your mind open. And what's the goal here? What's the end target? And that's really all you should be focusing on. And all right. So your lead got kicked to the trash. Well, we're going to come back in tomorrow and we get to do this all over again, which was one of the things I loved about working at a newspaper. So, you know, walk it off and, suck it up, and I'll see you in the morning, and we'll take another stab at it. But it really hit me early that whatever that cliche is, the the book, everything I learned about life I learned in kindergarten, don't be a jerk. And things usually work out is what I came back to. And I feel like that's served me well. Not that, hey, I can be as big a jerk as anyone under trying circumstances, but I tried to focus on that.
3: That's interesting. That makes me think about this story that I read in Chris, your article or interview that you did, I think in Medium, you said you described musicians and their crew. You said something like the vibe starts from the top. Like if the whole group is all friendly and nice and helpful, chances are the musician that they're working for is like that too. And the opposite is also in place where the crew, if they were really unpleasant and really selfish and not really helpful, then the musician tends to be that way too. So I guess this just kind of goes in every field, right? So I'm sure you can't really say who <laughs> was Oh, come that? <laughs> on. It's time to
2: name names here.
3: <laughs> but who were some of the nicest ones? Nicest performers. Oh, the nicest ones you want. Let's start with that.
0: (laughs) The nicest ones. Well, there were a lot of really nice people. Diana Krall immediately comes to mind for some reason. Oh, yeah, Patty Smith was super nice, really approachable, and just lovely. Remember, Steve, that story where she can't see very well. She wore glasses, but she wasn't wearing them. So she saw me across the stage, and so she came towards me and came like up to my face to go, who are you? And I was like, whoa, okay, you're friendly. So the first show I booked at the theater back in 94 was Dave Brubeck, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, and opening were Dave's sons, Danny and Chris, and Mike D'Amico, right, on guitar in their trio. And you could not find a more lovely group of human beings. I mean, you know, here's Brubeck, who must have been 80 at the time or more, still a legendary guy, and his kids opened for him, and then they had a band drum-off between dave's drummer and danny brubeck who danny had like 14 drums and a million cymbals and dave's drummer had three drums two cymbals and a hi-hat that was all he had and he just killed danny brubeck on the stage and i don't know what this has to do with what we're talking about but it's just the story that those guys were lovely lovely people and lady smith black Mombazo, david byrne totally sweet angelique Kijo was lovely hey aretha franklin was lovely I mean, she had four bodyguards, but once she got past the bodyguards, we had to count out money with the Queen of Soul, which we rarely do artists ask for cash payment, but she did probably because of decades of being ripped off. And so we had to, before the show, pay her in cash and in this little teeny pipe and drape room that we created because she couldn't go downstairs to our dressing rooms, she could not have been lovelier. She kidded around with us. After we counted the money, <laughs> she recounted it. In some bizarre Aretha Franklin way, that used, I don't know, it was like 1271580. Uh, what? And then she took this wad of money and <laughs> held it to her chest and said, I think we're short. <laughs> we all we, we kind of froze. And then she just smiled and said, It's cool. I must have miscounted. And then she wanted to know all about the theater and, you know, Mark Twain and played there at 1869. And she asked me if I thought. Mark Twain's friend Thomas Edison came to the show (laughs) and I said hmm and what was in my brain was they were alive at the same time (laughs) Mark Twain I didn't know that and indeed I checked it indeed they were friends so who knows Edison lived in New Jersey so it's possible but yeah I mean some of the artists are just so cool like that David Sedaris oh my god we just have him just to have him he comes almost every year and he is such a sweet unbelievably funny dude all the time and just i mean he's one of the guys that sits out in the house after the show and meets every single person in the theater and signs their thing and talks to them and stuff so when that happens man it's like it's great because it means you it feels like you have a real relationship with these people that are coming through because the the road is a hard it's hard it's a very hard business to be a different town every night and eating different food and hoping it's good and hoping the tech is good and hoping the house is full and hoping, hoping, hoping everything is fine, you know, which can be very, very stressful. So you're right, can't go That, or I guess I'm right. <laughs> Whoever is the artist, whoever's the king or the queen of the day, it does affect all those other people around them. And, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule, but generally that's the way, I mean, when somebody's not particularly nice, what it creates with the crew and everybody is a kind of paranoia about everything it's a kind of uh we can't deviate from anything and everything has to be perfect or we're going to get yelled at and you know aretha has that reputation most definitely had that reputation though we did not see it we didn't see it in any way shape or form when she was with us but the next night who knows she might have let loose on somebody you know she's been known to fire musicians on the stage on the spot go (laughs) leave the stage but could not have been sweeter and really most of the start you know Santana was great I mean it's hard to actually name uh, Ray Davies was the only one that asked to for the key to the dressing room to lock himself in that was weird (laughs) I thought because we're like we're not going to barge in on you You can do whatever you want and generally when they agree to do a meet and greet which not everybody agrees to do that is a real tip off that they actually like people they like to meet the people that like them and they understand that there's a relationship there between the fans and their entire careers. So when they adamantly refuse, that's a bit of a tip-off sometimes to their personalities because it's show business. It's not, you don't have to hide. The whole point is for you to be exposed to some degree. Though on the other hand, if you don't want to meet, fine. I get it. It's hard enough to do my job and I want to go home. I remember vividly Patty LaBelle, who we had a dozen years ago, who was fabulous and were super nice but she agreed to a meet and greet but she said it has to be before the show because after the show my makeup is running all the way down my face and it's a horror show stuff like that i remember what's his name who's that guy all the fans i love before iglesias julio iglesias he would only be photographed from one side that was hilarious we're all individual types you know like just like the four of us and uh i was on the road many years ago before I came to uh, New York and it's not as romantic as it might seem I mean basically it's an easy place to pick up really bad habits everybody knows that but it's so true and that's why we make a huge effort to make sure everything an artist wishes is there and soup to nuts and they notice it you know some of them like Dana crawl again comes to mind because she's such a lovely person but she went around to our like all of our food that was laid out for her and had her assistant take pictures of everything to send to the next venue to say, this is what, (laughs) this is called hospitality. Because like I said, you just don't know if you're just gonna get some burger somewhere and nobody's paying attention to your rider. Because it's like, this is my meal. I have to eat this and go do my magic or afterwards or whatever. I do remember vividly Lou Reed. devouring a steak in the dressing room after the show. He didn't eat before the show at all, so he was really hungry. And I was hanging out back there. He was happy and fine and good, but man, was he wolfing that steak down.
2: Is Tale of the Strange Rider a myth? Chris, do you get like weird things like, I want like four bottles of Old Overholt and like 20 brown M&Ms?
0: Totally. No, that's not a myth. That's true. We tend to cross out large amounts of alcohol, and we always cross out cigarettes, Things that are just, this is your habit. It's not our problem. Some people ask for a pair of socks. Like, what? I mean, people ask for whatever they can get away with. I mean, it's not unusual to say a case of vodka in the bus. We're like, no, we're not giving you a case of vodka for you to take home. Just, they'll ask for, why not? You know, ask for the moon. But we, oh, I know there a story on her rider. First time we tried to get her, she had to cancel because of the illness, but, uh, she personally went through it, which is very unusual. I mean, it's usually a manager or agent. And she crossed out any page that had alcohol anywhere. She crossed the alcohol out. I and mean, then she wrote a note that said, under no circumstances should any alcohol be backstage around the musicians. Love Aretha. And she signed it <laughs> Happy Face because she knows. But generally, yeah, alcohol is a big, obviously, a biggie.
3: Yeah. John, I was also reading in your interview about a lot of your memories with people that you've interviewed. And you said something like Pete Seeger would just always sing one or two phrases from a couple of songs in the interview. Was that you? There was a period
1: where I don't even know how I got Pete Seeger's home phone number. I think I actually got it at my previous paper or maybe from Chris Silva. For some reason, Pete Seeger's home phone number was in my contacts when I showed up or not long after I got to the Poughkeepsie Journal. So, using my initiative, I had absolutely no qualms if I had anybody's phone number of calling them and, hey, let's see what happens. Maybe I get hung up on. Maybe we end up talking for two hours. So, it got to the point where the first one went well. So, I wouldn't call them every week, but if I was working on a story where Pete's voice was pertinent, sure, I'd give him a call. And I would typically block out two hours from my schedule because we could just talk for two hours. And there was more than one occasion where I got a few bars of We Shall Overcome, or there was another time I got over the rainbow. Here's Pete Seeger on the other end of the phone. Or, you know, one time I called and he said, Hey, I'm just about to sit down to my lunch. I'll call you right back. And another time Toshi said he went to get the mail call back in 15 minutes. And more than once, if my memory serves me correctly, Pete, when he was a young man, he wanted to be a newspaper guy. He loved newspapers. And I think maybe when he was at Harvard, I think he went to Harvard, he was on the school newspaper. So typically, he'd be like, what's going on in the newsroom? What are you writing about? What do you hear? What's the word on the street? I mean, these are things he'd say. So we talked for 10 minutes about my day with Pete Seeger. So that was incredible. One time I was at the Clearwater Festival and I got there super early and he was just sitting under a tree by himself. So, of course, I just went up to him and sat down next to him. And boom, there was another 90 minute conversation kind of before the crowds came. And he just at the end, he stood up and he said, I got to go. Where's my water? And he was off to the next whatever at the festival. So that was really interesting. You know, we could talk about anything from the House Un-American Committee hearings that he testified at to Lord knows what, the Hudson River or Beacon or the post office. And it was great because he just never knew what was going to happen. And I really, really cherish those And I appreciated them when Pete was with us, but let me tell you how much I appreciate and cherish those right now.
3: I think what you just described him as is really a representation of the Hudson Valley itself. I think our community is exactly that. We encompass our interests from environment to politics to arts and history to everything. So he definitely was the face of our community, and he's greatly missed. And just reading about you, Chris, John, and just knowing what you've accomplished, Brian, through Chronogram, I think all of you have really lived most of your professional lives when things were much before the phone, maybe even before the Internet. You know, things were much more personal, and especially in the cultural scenes. Those musicians, you know, you kind of develop, I'm sure as a reporter, you develop relationships. Chris, obviously you developed relationships with the performers. And the pressure was much less, you know, to perform and to promote and to connect. You know, now young people are under tremendous pressure to be connected on social media and constantly be promoting. So I'm wondering how... You've seen those changes over the years from pre-internet, to internet, to smartphones, to now, (laughs) pandemic, oh my gosh.
2: Right. Well, I'll just jump in quickly and say one thing about promotion. A food writer who works for us, who's published, co-authored a book, and trying to pitch another book on food to a publisher, and the publisher said, well, how many followers do you have on Instagram? And they're like, call me back when you ha-. I can't remember what the number was, whether it was 100,000 or something. But that was, the publisher was saying, this is how we're going to judge how good your book is going to sell, is your presence on social media. So across the board, this is a new metric being used to, and you know, I'm sure it's the same way for performers. Obviously, there are units sold, and how many times your songs get played on Spotify, but it's also how many people are following you on Instagram.
1: Yeah, I think the reliance on metrics in the age we live in now versus when I started writing obituaries, and there were literally dozens of Yellow Pages books in the newsroom, dozens of them. That's how you found somebody, or you called information. And metrics are important, and they give you a snapshot, and they give you kind of a path forward. It's like the crossing the creek. You have the rocks laid out, and you go from one to the next to the next and metrics are good in that way but it just seems like they drive everything like brian's talking about like okay that's a good thing so this publisher wants to have an idea of what your audience is but i have a hard time with it ending there that can be for me that should be one piece of the puzzle i just feel like the heart and the soul and the passion are really getting kicked to the curb in society in general and it's how many instagram followers you have well Does that really speak to the quality of whatever it is you're doing? I've been to plenty of concerts where it's been sold out and I'm shaking my head saying, am I missing something? Because I'm not getting this. That's only getting ramped up with the metrics. And I really think it's tragic that for so many people, for those creating the art and those who are getting it out to audiences like publishers, that that's where it ends. And I think that's a real problem.
3: Yeah, I noticed that to be a journalist now, you have to have a Twitter account. I mean, that's really where a lot of the news happens. So I'm sure, John, was that were you kind of at the tail end of that sort of trend, or were you lucky enough to miss all of that?
1: No, I kind of love my position. Brian and I are kind of, we're coming at it from a similar spot, I'm sure. But going from no internet to the internet Or when I was with the Poughkeepsie Journal, you needed someone's phone number or a tour schedule or a, a press contact, and you have it in about three and a half seconds versus doing a little digging and working the phone or, heaven forbid, getting out of my chair and getting out of the office and going out into the community to meet people. So I think all of that are great tools. Yeah, when I was writing about a band, yeah, one of the first things I would do is I'd go to their social media and see what their following is, but it wouldn't end there. In fact, if they don't have any social media following, yet I found their music to be compelling beyond my wildest dreams, then that's the story. Where's this band's audience? What's going on here? Hello? So for me personally, this end of the road being how many Instagram followers you have or This whole concept of being an influencer, is that just a middleman? Like, what are they doing? What do they make? What are they, how are they improving life? What are they organically creating? I try to write, which starts in my brain and my heart, but when it just falls back on numbers and followers and -and so-and-so saying, well, I like these shoes, I don't know. That seems to be a downward trend to me.
3: Brian and John do you get a sense of where performers and artists are financially now compared to before? Like, are they getting more opportunities because of these expanded tools or? Well, musicians are really not making any money selling music now, so they solely depend on performers and writers, journalists, I don't know where they're getting their jobs. And photographers, you know, like all of these things have really changed. Chris, you deal with performers that are already successful, so I guess you probably don't get a pulse of what it's like for the performance. But if I can kind of get your take on how artists and performers are doing financially now, that would be interesting.
0: Terribly, I think. Terribly. I mean, you know, it's everything you guys have been saying. I mean. There is no record business. I mean, you know, I'm older. So I do remember in the 70s and 80s when our band was going to have a record come out, there'd be a line around the block at Tower Records to get that record. And so that created an audience and that audience followed them when they toured. I was raised in San Francisco. So I got the benefit of Bill Graham from the beginning of his career to the end. And that was a gift. And he didn't know what was going to sell. But chances are, if he had it, it would sell and he put together the wildest combination miles davis with the grateful dead i mean so but yeah lots has changed i mean but right now just to answer your question yeah i, I think artists are terrible i mean all, every musician i know is struggling to pick up a few dollars performing online that's all you can do it's very hard for that to pay off you know like i said i mean all these album revisited things that we put out they're free we ask people to donate So that donation represents, on some level, what they think this experience is of value to them. And then some people say, well, getting it for free. Fine. Which is, unfortunately, the attitude about music. You can get every bit of music you ever want to hear in your life for free. So, oops, the musician doesn't get a thing. So it's bad. You know, it's why, not news, but all these musicians are selling their rights. Because why not make the money now? Because you're never going to make it in your lifetime or beyond even because of the business is so, so bad. So live performing is critical. And merchandise, live performing and merchandise sales are a big, big deal. And until that can happen
2: again, artists are going to really be struggling. There is a certain, I think, uh, maybe generational divide in some way. And I would actually like to be pushed back against if you guys disagree with me. Where we grew up paying for albums paying for newspapers, and then at a certain point, information migrated online. And so there is an assumption, even maybe it's not even generational, but there's something changed where now we get our media for free, a lot of it. And so we launched a couple of years ago, the River Newsroom, which was this local journalism initiative that we wanted to start to help with the news desertification that's happening in the Hudson Valley, and we wanted it to be reader funded and we're not anywhere near sustainability yet. And I think part of it is the perception that the news, quote unquote, is free, right? Whereas we have people who are salaried reporting this news for us. And so it's hard to get people to commit to paying for that when they are getting it for free. And then we're asking them on the back end for money.
1: I'd like to say two things on that. One is, I think the industry can take a lot of blame for that. It's tough to give something away on Tuesday night and then ask someone to pay for it on Wednesday morning, whatever you're selling. And you know, it's this has been debated at length everywhere that the news industry kind of missed the boat in terms of being on top of the internet. I mean, one of the greatest achievements of mankind, and they really missed the boat, which is why they're struggling so much right now. And being a content creator and working at a newspaper, one thing that I did regularly was post my stories on Facebook. So the journal would have whatever, five free stories, and then they want you to pay. So I would post something on Facebook, and people within the comments would say, hey, can someone cut and paste that and put it in the comment? Because the journal, you know, the evil... Overlord wants me to pay for this content. So I would get on there and I would say, Yeah, isn't that ridiculous? We want you to actually pay for the news. I mean, you don't pay for groceries at Hannaford, do you? Or you don't pay for gas at Quick Check? Why on earth would you pay for the news? That's ridiculous. And then I would say, You are literally putting food on my table and gas in my car by signing up for what? 99 cents for three months? And it just really irritated me to no end. I'm your neighbor. I wrote for the Poughkeepsie Journal, and I know you live in the Hudson Valley. I'm your neighbor. I'm going to go spend money at your business or in your town and support your businesses. And people just blew right past it. And it really boggled my mind. Like, hey, my pal's in a band. Let's go see him and pay the $5 cover charge. And okay, they'll make a few hundred dollars a night. Why wouldn't you want to support your neighbor or your neighborhood business? Yeah, Poughkeepsie Journal is owned by Gannett, which is a big company based in McLean, Virginia. But we all live here and we are certainly weren't in it for the money. We were in it because we loved our community and we wanted to get the straight story out there. And so, A, the industry missed the boat. But B, the lack of support repeatedly that I saw just really left me scratching my head.
0: You are listening to intrinsic podcast produced by forge collective
3: so where do you think we're going musicians performers they were struggling before the pandemic and now of course they're even struggling more local journalism that's struggling and that's something that's been going on for a long time and people all know that it's bad, but once they get used to not paying for music, not paying for news, it's very hard to go back to paying for these pieces. So where do you think we're going in a big picture and also out of pandemic?
2: Right. Well, so I'll just say that one thing that we have to understand right now is what's happening with regard to the great migration into the Hudson Valley. And some of us are sitting here in Kingston and, you know, this is the hottest or has been recently the hottest real estate market in the country. And so there's this influx of a lot of new people who are moving in with their New York City or other place jobs that are bringing great wealth to where we are. And so they're going to infuse the area with, I think, a lot of money, which will over time, I think, be... Good for the retail businesses and the local businesses. What those local businesses will look like. Are they all going to be like artisanal butcher shops? I don't know. So like we're operating in this context of this kind of lots of money coming in. We're also, I've been working on a piece about people talking to me in the cultural industry about how they feel, what they're thinking about for the future. Everyone is optimistic that I'm talking to. And so I think that has to do with obviously spring being around the corner, the political turmoil following the election being over, quote unquote, at least the active insurrection seemingly is over. And spoke to a couple this week who bought the movie house in Millerton, which is a little independent cinema in rural Dutchess County. And I said to them, What are you doing? You know, you're buying a movie theater in a pandemic. The movies are disrupted to begin with. Hollywood is now releasing first run movies to video and you're buying a brick and mortar. And the place was listed for over a million dollars. And they said, turns out there were 12 other bidders besides us on the movie house. And they're very optimistic about the future. They're business people. They didn't just like throw crazy money at this thing. They have a plan. They're gonna make some changes. The wife runs restaurants and bars. And so she knows what she's doing. The husband is in commercial real estate they have a 20 year plan, but it's a plan. And so as a cultural institution, they feel that this place is going to thrive over time. And so when you look at the cultural landscape in the Hudson Valley, the Woodstock Film Festival, they just bought a building. The Phoenicia Festival of The Voice, they just bought a building. The Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival is building their own facility on land. Like the cultural landscape is really exciting. I think once we get through the other end of the pandemic, I think everyone is just going to be having all this pent-up energy and is going to be so excited to be out there spending money and being in community, like physical community with other people.
3: Well, that's really great to hear. I guess my question would be then, where do they think the money will be coming from? I guess just from people who will be living up here now, now that they know that they can live and work remotely, will stay here and pour that money into local cultural scene. I'm guessing that that's where, that's part of the plan. Then, so where are the artists in that picture, I wonder? Are they going to bring in, just depend on artists who are already successful or they spread through like young, just budding musicians and artists? I guess that remains to be seen.
2: Right. Well, the problem, of course, then is all this new money comes in and Ulster County, which had traditionally been a place where artists live because it was cheap, they can't live here anymore. Right. This is a classic scenario that's happened time and time again in places. So that's its own problem.
3: Except I think unlike Brooklyn, the home ownership, even among low income artists, is high or has been high. You know, now that our property taxes will probably go up. You know, I don't know how much, and also the living expenses will go up. So I don't know if that's going to be pressure to move out of this area, but at least we have a greater percentage of homeowners than rather than renters. So that's one good thing. So I wanna throw in something as a kind of an activist here. My background is an artist and I started getting more into activism because it's so hard for artists to make the ends meet. So I am seeing also pretty positive signs locally with like social engagement from the community and the government. Ulster County just announced universal basic income pilot. So this is a policy that gives, ultimately, it's a policy that would give every citizen a set amount of money, like $1,000 or $1,200 a month every month, no questions asked, it's not means tested and you don't have to prove anything. I started to support this policy because I thought it would be great for artists, right? And now it seems like people are really embracing this idea. So I want to hear from you if you think this would impact the cultural scene. I'm talking about, you know, especially artists and musicians and performers, but also people who maybe not have had the money to go to, say, you know, Bardavon, very often. Now that kind of distance may have some spending money that they can spend on you know, tickets and streamings and stuff. So any thoughts?
0: It's a great idea. I mean, obviously it's been tried in cities. Like I remember just reading about Stockton, California, I think has a policy, it's not like every citizen, but it's, that's happening in Ulster County in a tiny way, 125 families or something. What I've experienced as a lawyer of 20 people, 15 of our people have been on its furlough for a year. And luckily, because of federal stimulus and unemployment, and we're also paying everybody whatever, one to three days, depending on what they're doing, maintain health insurance, Everybody is okay during this entire period, even though we're completely closed. And I mean, we're doing programs, but with no audience. And so that's so obvious that that's the reason everybody is okay. So the stimulus packets are about to pass, I hope, in the next week. Again, that's so critical because of the situation. And to I've always dreamed Clinton, no, or maybe Obama. No, would create a WPA, which was so successful in the 30s and especially successful for artists. I mean, it was like key to a lot of major artists and minor artists and artists who became more major because of the exposure they had and theater artists and you name it. I mean, Orson Welles benefited from the WPA directly in his creative growth as a 20 year old or whatever when he first started. So, I mean, it's, that would be so great, because as you know, our government does not support the arts, really at all. I mean, seriously, it just doesn't. There's a number next to the NEA and all the arts councils in every state, but my God, it, it's ridiculous compared to Europe, almost every country in Europe. And and it, it speaks volumes to how this country devalues art and artists and until they put their money where their mouth is just as you're suggesting it's going to be that way So artists have always struggled in this country except maybe in that golden period when everybody was struggling during the depression that one pocket go to almost any old post office and see a mural it was painted by some artist during the wpa so
3: I wonder if we can do that on a local level, like WPA kind of program, either in Ulster County or the Hudson Valley. I mean, we certainly have the talents and money to do it, right?
0: Well, you know, it's happening indirectly. Foundations in our community that support organizations like mine and many, many others, that's basically what they're doing, giving you money to operate and to pay your employees. But yeah, our daily struggle... Is to find more money. I mean, it's, it's just the way it is with a nonprofit. So, but we've been successful. And what is encouraging is that there seems to be more opportunities, more foundations, more trusts being set up, more opportunities to try to find money. My daughter's a visual artist. I keep sending her links to grants and saying, "This could fit you. That could fit you." And it's making that effort to it's not easy but it it could pay off and she gets a few of them and it's great but it's up to the right now in this country it's up to the artists and the arts administrators to find their own resources the government isn't just handing it out i mean the national endowment it's great but come on the amount of money is a joke and i appreciate every dollar i get but it, it could be everybody knows the argument but you know if we just cut 20% of the defense funding could change the entire world. So it's like stuck in this bog still, It's, it's been stuck in this place for a long, long time.
2: Right, and all of the other businesses that do well, maybe on the back of the cultural economy is the wrong way to say this, but arts and culture drive so much of the economy. And here in the Hudson Valley, cultural tourism is a huge part of our economy. And so the Bardevon Storm King Art Center, we could go on and on. But people come here for these things. And they move here because we have nice things like these things. Why is Kingston the hottest real estate market in the country? We have these murals up all around town that didn't exist here 10 years ago. O Positive Festival has created Kingston as a mural city. And there are artists all around here. The murals are just the kind of physical manifestation of how creative the city is. And so all of that is just built on the back of the artists and the cultural institutions that are here.
3: So I'm wondering if we could really create a program that is like WPA. I know that Arts Mid Hudson does a lot of things. They give out grants for artists to create works, but not many people really know about it. And it's really it's only known among artists, and it's not really known among the public. I think it has to be more of a public knowledge, and I think the community has to have a sense of ownership for those kind of programs so they feel like, okay, we are a cultural city, and we are going to going to take care of the artists so that artists can take care of us. Kind of reciprocal relationship. That's what I would love to see.
1: But I think a big component of that is the public stepping up and buying a digital subscription to their newspaper or buying a Bardavon membership or Brian supporting your advertisers and saying, I saw your ad in the chronogram and I'm spending my money here. And Chris, I think you mentioned this or forgive me if it was Brian, but this country does not prioritize or not even prioritize, but they don't recognize the impact of creative people and the arts, like Brian was just saying. Chris, what did you tell me once? That Bardavon audiences spend $3 million a year beyond the price of their ticket?
0: Yeah, actually, it's more than that. America's for the Arts has a great calculator that gets you these numbers. But yes, it's something like, uh, I don't know, $30 for every customer on top. You know, when they go out to dinner or they pump gas in their car or they get a babysitter or whatever the heck it is. But it's interesting because... In this stimulus package and this has never ever happened there's 15 billion dollars for that was sort of stimulated by a bunch of venues including ours throughout the country save our stages this group called Neva did a great great job lobbying especially in New York but Amy Klobuchar was a big part of this as well and 15 billion And it's for venues. I mean, it includes comedy clubs, it includes museums, it includes a lot of different things. But that's nothing close to that has ever happened. But that's only because they were convinced, as John just said, that these institutions have value to the economy of the communities that they serve, and that was the selling point. If it was anything other than economic benefit, I'm sure it never would have made its way. And they haven't passed it yet, but it's and that's great i mean thousands and thousands of venues are going to benefit from that and not go under but if that's over so what so 2021 ends everybody got their big check whatever it was and now we are crawling into 2022 we're not going to jump into the end of 21 and everything happy days are here again i think it's going to be a slow i mean like we're saying i mean i'm always optimistic but you know what is it? 15% of Ulster County has been vaccinated once, or something like that, or 10% of the nation, or something like that. So every one of those vaccinations makes people feel better, safer, more confident that they can actually go outside, or go inside, I should say, <laughs> or stay inside with you know 10 people or whatever it is. So obviously, once 300 million or whatever it's going to be, most of this country is vaccinated, then. see that change but that money that's not coming back 15 billion that's not going to be returning in the next budget year it's not going to be anything maybe the nea will have a larger budget but like i said that's so minor compared to the number of artists in the country who are going to always be in need of work it's funny because i had a local funder who i won't name but who's been super generous to us for a long long time 35 years something and so they gave us a lot of money and they just cut some of that money for one of the areas that they were funding in our operation. And they said, Well, we started funding that part of your operation 30 years ago to stabilize you, but we figure you must be stable now. And I said, No, that's not how it is. <laughs> it's no, <laughs> we're never stable. Nonprofits cannot be stable. Artists, it's not a stable. Thing. That's why you've been giving us this money for 30 years, Christ's sake. We haven't been throwing it away. So, even after a major funder like that, who understands the importance of what we do, gives us a lot of money, still in their brains, somewhere, maybe it's a rationale, are saying, "Mm, they have enough. They got enough money now. I can go do something else. And so, we're all at the whim of people who've got the purse strings, all of us. And that's nothing new. That's not a newsflash. But for artists, it's especially hard because of the nature of what we all do.
3: For the parting questions, I would like to ask each of you, if you had a magic wand, what would you like to see happen in your own industry? Like for you, Brian, what would you like to see in the future of Chronogram and John for journalism in particular, and for Chris, Bardavon, and UPAC, what would you like to see?
0: I've thought a lot about this because I'm on more of my way out than my way in. So we may have a magic wand, but we're really trying to get stabilization funds for the next five years. A lot of them, a lot of funds, so that as some of us transition out when younger people come in, they can be paid properly. And that it doesn't leave the organization weakened because many of us have been together. I've been at the theater 26 years and many of us have been together for 26 years. So and others for 10, 15 years, et cetera. So we're working to do that because our own organization that has to happen. And I would think probably for any organization. or or individual, you have to try to figure out, what's the next half dozen years going to be like? Especially in this new world that we're all going to emerge out of at some point. What is it now? I don't know. I am hopeful. Live music, and I think people will want to gather together, will want to cheer on their favorite bands or whatever. I think that there's going to be a hunger for that for sure. And you're seeing it actually in the knucklehead states that are opening up already. They're filling these venues and spread the disease. But people are pent up and really do want to get together with their friends and loved ones and have fun. I think for the newspaper industry,
1: this is gonna sound crazy, but the internet really marked the demise of the newspaper industry short of a pact among media outlets to shut it down, shut down the online component, go back to a print product and make people buy it a physical thing that you hold in your hands and turn the pages, I don't see any salvation for at least the newspaper industry. And it will never happen. But I've often thought if everyone just agreed to shut down the online component and we go back to you wake up in the morning and you walk out to the edge of your, your front path and you pick it up and you have your coffee, it's just going to keep spiraling
2: down, in my opinion. Wow. All right. No going to try and follow that little bit of sunshine. It's funny as our publications are all free and we've survived mostly um, through being supported by local advertising. And that base has eroded slightly over time and we are trying to make that up with reader support. And so looking into the future, what I would like, I would like to continue to tell stories. I don't know what the platforms are going to be. We started out just doing ink and paper, right? And images and words. And now we do some video, we do some audio. We are on Instagram, we're on all the channels. Not on TikTok yet, but look for my dance compilation in the near future. So, you know, I don't know what the platforms are going to be, but I hope that Chronogram can continue to tell the evolving story of the Hudson Valley as it continues to evolve.
3: All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great, inspiring conversation. And I wish all of you, all the dreams come true. And for all of us artists, <laughs> at least we're in a really, really great community. You know, that we can't complain about that. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Diego. Thanks.
3: John Barry has a music blog called Barry on the Beat at BarryOnTheBeat.com. Check out the programs of Bardavon and UPAC at bardavon.org. That's B-A-R-D-A-V-O-N You can pick up a copy of Chronogram for free at over 750 distribution locations in greater Hudson Valley. Or read it online at chronogram.com. Today's episode was produced by Jacob Rossi. Intrinsic is a production of Forge Collective, an alliance of creators for radical honesty. Many thanks to John Notar for contributing original music. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and consider making a tax-deductible donation at forgeartcollective.org. Thank you for listening, and tune back in in two weeks.